WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org, presenting diverse music and alternative public affairs. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Donna Craft Smith, licensed massage therapist, and the Therapeutic Bodywork Learning Center, a massage therapy school in Brewer, Maine, offering initial and continuing massage education through weekend intensives, 989-4325 or mainemassageschool.com. It's 10 o'clock and about 15 seconds before 10.01. It's time for Healthy Options. Good morning and welcome to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and on our program today, we'll be discussing adverse childhood experiences and the new research showing that stressful experiences in childhood can alter the brain development, causing lifelong negative effects on health and behavior, including heart disease, cancer, substance abuse, depression, and more. This has given rise to the science of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, and a new movement which aims to treat and prevent toxic stress, which is a biological response to severe and or recurrent adversity. Our guests today are Sue Mackey Andrews and Patrick Walsh, each of whom have extensive knowledge and experience in this vital area of concern. Sue Mackey Andrews co-founded and continues to serve as co-facilitator of the Maine Resilience Building Network. She travels statewide, sparking conversations, focusing on adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, and promoting resilience in children, families, and our communities. She's been recognized by both the Maine Children's Trust and the Maine Children's Alliance for her child advocacy work and received the ACEs Avenger Award in 2017 from the Maine Resilience Building Network. Sue Mackey Andrews is currently a member of the Maine Child Children's Growth Council, co-founder of the Maine Coalition for the Advancements of Child and Adolescent Mental Health. And Sue Mackey Andrews is also the monthly host of Family Corner right here on WERU on the fourth Wednesday of each month. And we welcome her by phone. And our other guest here in the studio with us is Patrick Walsh. He was the director of the Prevention Services at Broadreach Family and Community Services for 18 years. Prior to that, he worked for the Knox County District Attorney's Office as, let's see if we can get this, uh, prosecutorial assistant. Yay. And before this, he had been director of the Waldo County Child and Parent Council. Patrick Walsh also worked as a victim and witness advocate for Waldo and Knox Counties and has been an ombudsman for the Waldo County Committees for Social action. He served on a number of commissions and advisory boards focused on child, youth, and family safety, and currently he is facilitating the Midcoast Resilience Project. Welcome, Patrick Walsh, and I'm so glad that you both could be with us here today on Healthy Options. So let's start. Uh, Patrick, maybe you can start, and, and we'll get Sue in here too. What is meant by adverse child experiences, childhood experiences? So the term was coined uh, as a result of a study that was done at Kaiser Permanente uh, Health uh, Management Organization in San Diego in the mid-90s. Um, the physician there, Dr. Vincent Felitti, had been uh, the director of an obesity clinic. And in uh, trying to puzzle out why it is that some people who experienced weight loss um, then regained weight, he began to do a more... Um, 
inclusive uh, history, and he found that about uh, half of his uh, patients at the obesity clinic had been sexually abused as children, and he began to wonder about the emotional underpinnings of disease and and uh, uh, maladaptive types of behaviors, wound up connecting with uh, a physician named Dr. Robert Anda, who is an epidemiologist at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they designed a research study that involved uh, ultimately 17,500 patients of Kaiser Permanente HMO and doing an extensive questionnaire, an extensive uh, survey of uh, people's experience. And then because they were the possessors of the medical records, they were able to compare um, life experience with uh, physical health outcomes. This was a group of people that was approximately 75% Caucasian, as many as 70% had some college education. They were, at that point in their life, um, considered to be middle class, had jobs that afforded health care. And when the um, analysis of the survey work was done, the physicians identified 10 uh, experiences which they identified as adverse And those included uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, a mother being treated violently, household substance abuse, household mental illness, parental separation or divorce, and the incarceration of a household member. Um, Their findings were that um, the adverse childhood experiences that they measured were um, significant. 28% of the individuals had uh, identified as being physically abused. 27% uh, lived with a substance-abusing parent. 20% had been sexually abused. 13% had lived in an environment where their mother was treated violently. So um, since then, uh, they issued their report in 1998, there's been a slow growth of understanding about the impact of adverse childhood experiences uh, on our communities. So, Sue, you're you're working right here in Maine with this work. I am. I am. It's good to be with you. It's uh, it's different to be on this side of the uh, radio program. I, I was wondering how that would be. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Hi, Sue. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Yes, we've been um, really in the weeds with ACEs here in Maine since probably uh, 2007, 2008, when we were very fortunate to have, um, actually since then, both of the co-principal investigators have been to Maine and have worked with a variety of stakeholders to better understand the work. And Patrick did a great job of outlining the ACEs study. Um, and what we're finding in Maine is we're now talking about the pair of ACEs. So you have adverse childhood experiences, but we also have adverse community experiences. And those can be in the context of what we call social determinants of health. So the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the community we live in, um, whether we're um, exposed to a lot of noise or gunfire, et cetera. Um, so we're looking at other forms of trauma that people experience, um, and it could be a child who's born medically vulnerable who goes through a lot of surgical procedures, or it could be a car accident, or for the child in um, a early care setting or public school, it could be bullying. 
um, or being homeless or one of the things that we're we're noticing right now, especially with our new Mainer population, um, which who are our migrant and immigrant families, um, really that they bring their own um, historical trauma here to our country with them, at which is um, often told in oral language. So it's a much more deep experience when they share their stories than it is if we simply read printed uh, words. Um, and I and I think with um, a lot of our youth who are grappling with sexual identity, um, we see with our LGBT community that they often experience much more discrimination and marginalization um, than do other populations of kids. So we're really looking at that whole life experience, and, and the ACE study looked at birth to age 18, but we're, we know that trauma is in our lives pretty much throughout the lifespan. Patrick is shaking his head. Is there something you'd want to add to, uh, to, to this in terms of what you're seeing in Maine? And, and what, well, that study was from 1998. We've learned so much. Yeah, we have. There have been uh, many follow-up studies uh, conducted by, you know, a variety of research institutions. There's been a lot of reporting um, you know, we've learned from activity in other states. Uh, Washington is a, uh, a state that uh, has uh, created uh, a lot of uh, information educational opportunities for its communities. Um, at a recent uh, a November uh, conference that was uh, put together by the Maine Resilience Building Network, we got to hear from a representative from the state of Tennessee that's approached this in a, with a campaign called Building Strong Brains. And so their approach, which was um, the product of working with their state's Department of Education and Human Services and Labor, was uh, to take a look at what the communities needed in order to guarantee uh, school success for children and for uh, future workers. And so the idea of building strong brains is, um, you know, a slightly different approach than saying um, we don't uh, want to have abusive parents or neglectful parents. Um, those uh, issues are addressed in the overall, you know, positive nature of a community that's committed to building strong brains um, for its children. So, so are you are you seeing um, as you go through the state? Um, are we seeing actual uh, experiences of of catching some of the kids who are having uh, difficulty in academics? I think what we're we're knowing is that when you have those kinds of experiences the, of the ace, aces, the the um, a particularly high score, let's say more than one, that it might interfere. It would definitely interfere with your concentration. It definitely interferes with, um, with your ability to function and to become compassionate. And, and what are we seeing in, in Maine, in our schools or in our communities that makes us say, wow, we have, uh, we have an ACES situation? Right. It's, it's really interesting um, in, in across all age groups, actually, including prenatal, because what we know from the work of Bessel van der Kolk and Gabor Mate is that these kinds of trauma um, can also affect the fetus, the developing fetus in the womb. So if mom is living in an abusive situation or homeless and 
dealing with the stress of that, that can also affect the developing brain, as Patrick was just talking about. But we, um, we in Maine have really wanted to quantify um, do we, what is the, the picture of ACEs in Maine, because our hypothesis, as you remember, Patrick talked about um, the, the original study population, while well, all of those folks had high school degrees, if not college, or if not a, an advanced degree. They all had jobs, and they all had health care, and we know that that is not our main population. So we've been fortunate to participate in two studies. One is the Child and Adolescent Health Measurement Initiative, which this year um, it's done every three years, and it's a phone interview with uh, selected families across the country. Um, it showed that Maine's ACEs had, in fact, gotten far more significant, and we're now one of 11 states in the country with the highest ACE scores in our birth to 17 age population. And then um, if people aren't familiar, they may not be if, unless they have a child in middle and high school. Uh, Maine participates in the um, Maine Integrated Youth Health Survey, uh, which is a survey that's done on a voluntary basis across Maine um, with middle and high school students. And it asks about a variety of things, you know, drug and alcohol and sexual health and their grades and how much sleep they get at night and do they wear a helmet when they're riding their bike, et cetera. And for the first time in the 2017 questionnaire for the high school students, they asked a series of ACEs questions. So it looked at sexual assault, exposure to violence at home, um, whether there was divorce or a death of a parent, incarceration, you know, pretty much mirroring many of the ACE study categories, and we learned that about at least um, a quarter of our kids have experienced three or more ACEs, three or more out of these eight ACEs. So we're looking at pretty high numbers for our kids, um, and it, as it turns out, Waldo County has the highest percentage of children reporting ACEs, followed by Piscataquis, and then third by Washington um, County. So we can see some differences, and we certainly do see the differences much more substantially. The more north I go and do trainings, we see and hear far more reports about significant challenges that children are dealing with. We know, for example, that girls in Maine um, uh, experience a significantly higher ACE score than boys, that they're much more prevalent with kids who are LGBTQ and also for kids who are... are um, students of color. So when I go to schools and talk with them, we're able to talk about their own data. We're able to talk about, um, you know, we sort of do a verification. Is this what you're seeing? And they always, um, at least to this point, have verified that this is what, the, what they're seeing, if not more significant. So there may be some underreporting here. Huh. Um, but it's really affecting children. You know, Maine, we had a study also done uh, a couple of years ago with, in partnership with the Maine Children's Alliance, looking at the social-emotional learning and development of young children. So this is, this is kids largely birthed to age eight, and, and, it, and it grew out of a lot of complaints that I was hearing at trainings, whether they were early childhood teachers or public school educators, that we're seeing a huge escalation of really challenging behaviors in very young children, some as many 
as as young as 18 months of age. Um, and it's really challenging the system. I've, I've actually been with pre-K and kindergarten teachers who tell me that about almost half of their kids in their classrooms have very, very challenging behaviors. And what we learned through the study was that that was universally true. Um, again, a little bit more north um, than in the southern part of the state, but not substantially more. And um, also that we were able to confirm through the researchers that Maine has the second highest suspension and expulsion rate of very young children from early care and early elementary grades, second highest in the country. So we, our kids are showing us their ACEs in many, many different ways, whether it's school performance or behavior or um, developmental delays or poor health. Patrick, you wanted to get in here. Ahead. Well, yeah, I was going to say, Sue and I have touched uh, briefly about our um, collab- collaborative work in, in working with schools, uh, mine much less extensive than hers, but uh, um, as a facilitator for the Maine Resilience uh, Building Project, I um, worked with Broadreach to acquire rights to a film called Resilience, the Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope. And the license that we purchased from the film distributor uh, gave us uh, uh, an opportunity to present the film to both school staff and communities um, in both Waldo and Knox counties. And I've, you know, I've got to say that the, the work with school staff has been really enlightening. I mean, it really underscores what Sue has just said, I've talked to teachers who've said the behaviors are just getting worse and worse. And so um, schools, to their credit, are engaged in a lot of different types of uh, initiatives in order to um, provide greater feelings of safety for kids. Um, I've learned about an an initiative called uh, Zones of Regulation, which uh, is intended to help kids identify different levels of stress and and learn uh, ways in in which to um, self-regulate. And um, there are a lot more uh, mindfulness-based initiatives that are are happening in schools and schools, uh, including elementary, middle, and high school, uh, in order, again, to help promote the ability of uh, or support the ability of kids to to self-regulate when they're feeling overwhelmed. Because we know that what happens in the developing brain is that this – feeling of unsafety uh, or lack of safety that's, uh, you know, attributable to stress in the environment sort of switches on this, uh, this process uh, of, of regulation in the, in the amygdala, which uh, releases uh, adrenaline and other hormones, cortisol, which um, result in a child having a response that is typified as uh, fight, flight, or freeze. And when I talk with teachers about whether or not they can identify a child who's experiencing one of those states, uh, every uh, hand in the room goes up. Um, But what's happening is, as as Sue has mentioned, that as young as preschool or before preschool, um, we're seeing those kinds of behaviors and teachers are feeling overwhelmed. One of the saddest things that I've heard is many people who say, I can't take this anymore. I don't know how much longer I can stay in this profession. We need help. One teacher said, I have seven of these kids in my classroom out of 18. They all require individual attention at different times. I can't devote 
devote individual attention and still maintain, um, you know, my responsibility to educate the other children in my room. Um, so we are, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a crisis, but we certainly are being affected by um, the challenges presented by children at school. And I, I give the Department of Education credit. They're offering trainings uh, in creating trauma-sensitive schools to those schools who have been identified as having um, low academic achievement in their students. And um, I've attended one of those trainings, and uh, it was excellent. I know that there's another training coming up on April 30th. So there are efforts across the board for um, schools to offer mindfulness, meditation, yoga practices, self-regulation strategies, um, and and mutual uh, support as well. I uh, recently... Uh, met with a elementary school staff and um, talked about a physician who's uh, featured in this resilience film, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, and pointed out that Dr. Harris had uh, recently published a book called The Deepest Well. The principal of the school went out while we were talking about it and ordered 15 copies, and now that school is doing a a book study, a a study group around these issues. So uh, schools are really hungry for this information, and I I really appreciate the work that Sue is doing. So so when you go into the schools, are you helping to give them the resources? How how are they – is this a state – Funded, or is that something that we're losing funding for in this climate? How how is this working in terms of of identifying um, uh, and and intervening? Um, we are not state funded. Um, the Maine Resilience Building Network receives no federal or state monies. We've operated for several years on some small foundation grants, and just recently, this last year, have been charging a, a small fee. Uh, for the trainings either in community settings or in schools, so we're self-supporting. We don't advertise our services um, because we don't really yet have the capacity to respond to what I know would happen if we did that. Sure. Um, uh, Last month, in the month of March, I did 21 trainings throughout the state. Um, So they have been on the uptick uh, this year significantly. Um, but when we work with schools, we uh, first uh, meet with them, usually with their leadership team, their administrative team, which includes people from all levels of uh, pre-K through 12, and we talk about why they contacted us, what, what is it that's um, motivating them to learn about the science and think more about their um, community of school, et cetera. And um, and then we plan together the training for them. And there's always the basic foundation of the science and review of their My House data. And also working with teachers and faculty and staff, I mean faculty, staff, and administrators, about, you know, when are the good parts of the day, when are the challenging parts of the day, um, what are they doing that's working? Um, because many times... Um, Teachers and, and administrators, they know what works. And when they're given permission to do, uh, which is usually, as Patrick was just saying, do some mindfulness first thing when children come into the classroom and settle in, um, teaching both the teacher and the students 
that practice of mindfulness. Recently, I've been teaching finger holds to people, and they're teaching it to little kids. What is that? Finger holds, um, it's a Japanese uh, uh, form of of medicine, been around for centuries, but what it really does is every part of your hand and all of your fingers are connected to body parts, organs, and feelings in your body. And so when you get stressed or when you feel sad or when you don't feel confident in yourself, etc., doing some deep breathing, um, so feet on the floor, doing... Let's all do that. Oh. Yeah, let's all do it. Well, let me tell you what each finger means. Okay. Because that's probably (laughs) the best part. Um, And if people are interested, they can contact me through the Main Resilience Building Network, and I can send them some material. But there's probably about, um, I don't know, 30, 30 pressure holds that are taught through Japanese medicine, but in your on your hand. So if you look at your middle finger, um, that is your anger, rage finger, which, you know, we've all identified for a long time, I guess. So that's, <laughs> now we know where that came from. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, 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 so I just want to say for people who just tuned in, we are speaking with Sue Mackey Andrews, co-founder and co-facilitator of the Maine Resilience Building Network, and Patrick Walsh, the facilitator of the Midcoast Resiliency Project. And we're learning about um, uh, adverse childhood experiences. I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is Healthy Options. And we are now learning about finger Finger holds. Finger holds from, well, you know, I being a, a Japanese-style acupuncturist, this is right up my alley. So right. let's continue. Right. Okay, so, our middle finger, we know about anger now, and I think we culturally right. do know that. And then if you look at your thumb, that's your soothing finger, so thinking about a baby sucking their thumb, right? And your pointer finger is your rage finger, your rage panic finger. So think about, you know, when young children simulate a, you know, simulate the use of a gun, all right? Your ring finger is your grief finger, your sadness finger, and your pinky is your self-esteem finger. And so I teach in trainings, people get into a comfortable pose, feet on the floor, and do some deep breathing, and they think about how they're feeling, what's the emotion that they're feeling, and then they put um, a modest pressure, just wrap their other hand around the finger that is closest to the emotion that they're feeling, close their eyes and do, you know, maybe two or three minutes of deep breathing and just continuous pressure on that finger. And then move out of the breathing and release the pressure on the finger. And between the breathing and the pressure holds and the concentration that they're using, they often will report that they're feeling much better, whether it's less angry, more calm, more positive. And I've also seen people do the same thing with young children when they get a little out of control. They'll they'll grab their thumb in the grocery store and do some breathing and hold the thumb of that young child to quiet them. And it and it works. I've been doing this personally for about six or seven months. Um, well, we do really know something. obviously uh, not obviously always, uh, that there are all these meridians, there's these energy Uh throughout our body, and that they do actually begin and end in our, often in the extremities. And so we are, you're actually doing a a little bit of of good uh, acupressure as well. Uh But adding the breathing, if I 
at which, of course, calms the nervous system and, and can interrupt that fright, flight, the sympathetic charge. And putting that all together is, is just seems like a very brilliant, simple technique that, that we can bring into the schools, and it sounds like you are, and that's, that's really wonderful. Right, right. And schools also look at doing some things differently um, by identifying what times of the day are most challenging. They're able to look at their schedule and the, the activities, you know, going out to recess or coming back in. And many schools have identified the first thing in the morning, um, especially Monday morning when kids are newly coming in for the week. Yes. Um, because we have such food insecurity in our state, kids are coming to school hungry. Um, and so some schools have moved their breakfast program from the cafeteria to the classroom and creating a community who eats together and talks together and does mindfulness activities. And they're seeing that that's really improving the start of the week for many children. So they can really focus. Mm-hmm. And when you're, Patrick, you're going around in communities and showing this film, is that that kind of thing? Are those kinds of stories coming up uh, for people who are participating? Are they, anybody bringing up these kinds of things? Or what are you seeing when you show the film? And Because there's a, a many, I did, I did see the film and there's a lot of it, uh, there's a big, portion about schools and there was this wonderful was this in washington state i'm not remembering where they they created a puppet and well i think you're thinking of uh, miss kendra the miss yes. kendra curriculum which was yes. uh, uh initiated in um new haven connecticut at the oh, connecticut uh, yeah strong elementary school and uh since then that uh, group that initiated that it was a, a partnership between the elementary school and a local uh mental health practice that provided treatment for people who experienced uh, uh traumatic stress and um what it involves is um, setting a list of, of rules, Miss Kendra's list about how children uh, might be treated. No, no child should be punched or kicked. No child should be left alone for long periods of time. And um, the, the children, as young as kindergarten, kindergarten through third grade, are um, – uh, they get excited about those lessons and what they know. And then they're also given an opportunity to write to th- this fabled person, Miss Kendra, who loves kids and, and is um, committed to children's safety. And uh, the letters are very poignant because, um, as it's pointed out by a, a staff member at that school, um, adults think about their stress level. You know, we got to pay the mortgage. We got to do this. We got to do that. And we're sometimes not recognizing the stress level of children. So in, in that community, there is community violence. Um, and, and, uh, there are also you know, home-based things. Uh, kids might write about a child going to, uh, I mean, a parent going to jail, um, knowing that someone was uh, killed in their community and being worried about the safety of uh, themselves or their family. And the uh, drama therapists who work with a mental health center write a letter back to the child as in the voice of Ms. Kendra. And uh, what, what they found is some pretty dramatic uh, outcomes, um, school uh, disciplinary actions that have gone way down. The um, psychologist or psychiatrist who runs the program uh, shares that sometimes naming the things that are fearful or naming the um, – 
Yeah, fearful, scary things. Um, releases some of the power that that scary thing has over us. And um, their outcome reports from both children and their parents has been that people feel safer. They feel safer uh, about the school. They feel safer about the community. And that's, uh, you know, a positive result. Um, so, Is anyone doing that here in Maine that we know of or – well, I can tell you that uh, so far I've done uh, 36 showings of the film, and I can tell you that probably the single most engaging uh, thing is, how do we do Miss Kendra? Uh, and I've been following up. I've, I've asked people at each of the viewings to make out what I call an action plan. So what action might you might you take as a result of seeing the film? And many people have said, I'd like to get Miss Kendra instituted in, in my school. Uh, I, I don't think that that's happened yet. Obviously, it's complicated and requires a significant partnership with a mental health facility. It's not just a matter of reading Miss Kendra's rules, but the the fallback, uh, I think, if you will, is that many more teachers are committing themselves to simply – to, to ask simply, are you okay? You know, are, are things okay? And so the kind of check-in that Sue was talking about on a Monday morning, whether it, you know, it has to do with uh, food insecurity or something that uh, I experienced in providing uh, education to people going through divorce or separation, uh, is that we would often hear from teachers that when a child came back from a difficult time spent with a co-parent, um, their behavior might be affected. Their their level of stress had increased, and they needed to readjust and and self-regulate and all those other things. So, um, we're we're finding that um, schools are more and more in tune and willing to offer options for for kids um, in in order to calm, but. One of the things that came out of the state of Washington uh, was a report called No School Alone. And their legislature uh, had created in 2014 a requirement for a study that looked at community conditions and then um, compared those with academic performance of the school. And what they found was that uh, communities that had high adult ACE scores were reflected in poorer academic performance in the school. So their finding was that no school alone can can handle this. You can't manage this problem. You might not be able to um, control issues of poverty even by uh, creating nutritional programs where you're sending food home to families or, you know, whatever initiative you might be, that it's really a whole community effort. And so that's been part of uh, my uh, dedication to taking this film out to communities even though we're locating many of them at schools, is to say we all need to be working on this. Children are influenced by their community, by their school, by their obviously by their family relationships and by their peer relationships. So we need to be able to um, help support healthy development in all of those phases. Right, and, and Patrick is so right about that. Um, there's a whole lot of research that supports the role of relationships in building resilience in children, in all children, because we we're not born with a resilience gene. We cultivate that, and, and we cultivate it largely through relationships and experience. So, um, you know, having a community that is ACEs and resilience-informed um, encourages resilience promotion no matter where that child or family goes, whether it's the doctor's office or the grocery store or school or to church, et cetera. 
So that becomes really important. We've been doing um, a, a little activity in several schools um, that we now call Drop and Do, um, because what, it, what we're finding is that there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the course of the day um, at school, and these could be preschool programs as well as school-age programs. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening that's good and challenging. And teachers are, are often unable to do an intervention um, or to praise the child, et cetera. And so we've been talking about drop and do, which really says if you see an incident, good or bad, um, take a moment just to stop what you're doing and go get the affected people, and that could be teachers and other children, and just have a conversation about what just happened. How do we feel about what happened? Is this okay? And what would we do the next time that something like this happens? Because teachers are realizing that if, if, if bad, challenging, um, or uncomfortable things happen and we don't speak to them with children, we're sort of saying that that's okay. Um, and we don't want to be giving that mes- message to kids. So taking two or three minutes out to drop and do addresses the situation. There might be follow-up afterward, but the teachers are reporting that it's generally a really positive opportunity, and it's helping with some of the interruptions during the day. So considering the idea of relationships and community, let's talk about uh, the adult population, because if you have kids and your, your parents with your own ACE scores and ACE experiences, how how are we intervening? How are we how are we helping parents cope with their own stuff and then see how it's affecting their their children? Um, is how how is that working? Um, you know, aces are often a shared multi generational experience. Um, I've been working in the field of pediatrics in early childhood for a very long time. And, you know, I've never had a parent who said, I really want to mess up as a parent, Um, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we do. Um, And my experience in the community settings and doing some family work um, has been that parents are almost relieved when they hear about the ACEs study, and they're able to understand that these are things that happened to me. These are not things that I caused to happen. And, you know, once you identify a problem, it's, a lot easier to ask for help. It's a lot easier to identify what you need as help um, and to work towards positive change. So I am seeing that, and I bet Patrick is also in his work. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I and I might not have answered directly when Rhonda asked about what I was seeing with uh, adults who were coming to these viewings. So uh, I see notes and action plans about people who want to assess their own trauma history. Um, we provide this ten uh, question survey that uh, Dr. Robert Anda had had used and is presented in the film. It's a kind of shorthand uh, measurement for uh, assessing. Um, your childhood experiences, but it's it's uh, enlightening for some people. Uh, out of a possible ten, I have a personal score that I'm comfortable with of four, which puts me on a threshold, according to the study, of, of having a number of problems, which I won't detail here. But um, parents, uh, I, I have I've had people. Um, 
both write me letters, uh, send me emails. Uh, I've had people come up to me crying and saying, uh, this makes me feel so hopeful. And so the, the expression of tears uh, seems to be at, uh, you know, a, a disconnect with what they're saying. But the emotional release, I think, that some people feel to know that this is something that's being discussed, that there's science behind um, this and that there are efforts like yours, Sue, um, particularly, that uh, help to, to get this work out. And um, I, I just received a, a letter from somebody who said, I'm not really comfortable giving you my name, but um, you know, I'm really grateful that this information is getting out to the community and people are able to, to um, see this and think about it and talk about it. And I got an unexpected message from someone that said, I need you to call me as soon as possible. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody that I didn't know. And so we wound up talking, and he was referring to a, uh, a column that I'd written in the newspaper about adverse childhood experiences and um, a CDC uh, campaign. And he said, you, you know my story. You, you know, you've told my story. And I said, well, no, I really haven't, but... You know, I'll listen to whatever you want to tell me. And he was in need of some resources, which which I was able to share. So uh, I would just say that um, the exposure of the commonality of adverse experience and the um, uh, intuition about what that might have caused, why am I like this, uh, is, is very important. So uh, we are working with parents in a variety of ways, providing parent education, providing knowledge of child uh, of uh, parenting and child development, trying to get parents or families uh, socially connected with others, uh, helping them meet basic needs when they're struggling. This has been an effort uh, at Broadreach uh, Family and Community Services through their preschool program. And um, the effort to build social and emotional skills uh, in children um, all of these are factors that are identified uh, in a strengthening families framework that was uh, propounded by the uh, Center for the Study of Social Policy. And the uh, building of social emotional skills in children, uh, it's kind of sobering, but it means that they're less likely to be abused by a parent. They're less likely to have um, a serious response for appearing to be disrespect, disrespectful or ungrateful or any of those behaviors that might uh, prompt a, a child to be, uh, I mean, a parent to be, to be punitive. So we're focusing on trying to build those protective factors in families and encourage uh, schools to the extent that they can to engage with families and provide more opportunities to, to get together for support, education, conversation. If you just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guests today are Sue Mackey Andrews and Patrick Walsh. Sue Mackey Andrews is co-founder and co-facilitator of the Maine Resilience Building Network, and Patrick Walsh is the facilitator of the Midcoast Resilience Project. And we're discussing some ways of intervening and perhaps breaking a cycle or giving new skills to uh, to our community to help have more resilience. You know, we've been using that word. What do we mean by resilience? Sue, what, what, is, what is resilience? Well, resilience is the ability to um, pick yourself up after you've had a fall or a failure or the, uh, your, your willingness and ability to 
take a risk, not knowing how it's going to turn out. Um, and, you know, building resilience is something that, that we are coached through in our relationships. So uh, some of the work that I do share with parents and, and uh, schools is Ken Ginsburg's work um, on fostering resilience, which where Ken talks about seven, the seven C's to building resilience in young children and, and how often we have opportunities, for example, to encourage character development, to teach kids the, the difference between right and wrong in gentle and loving ways, and to encourage their confidence and their confidence in what they're doing, and to help them create connections with other people, because human connections are very important. Um, being isolated, not having people that you can turn to is not a healthy way of living either as a child or a, an adult. Um, one of the things that I encourage both parents and, and schools to uh, do with their kids is to encourage generosity in children, to encourage them to contribute and share because that's one of the, found, the, the pivotal foundations of resilience. Kids who have high degrees of generosity um, are often far more resilient um, than other children. And teaching kids how to cope when, when things don't go their way, so giving them uh, skills like in mindfulness or expressive communication, you know, positive expressive communication, um, understanding how their brain is developing. You know, when Patrick was talking about the amygdala and the hippocampus, you know, little kids can understand that their brains are on fire. It actually feels physically uncomfortable to them. And so how do, how do they learn how to identify that and then ask for help when, when they need it? And I think the last C that uh, Dr. Ginsburg talks about is control, you know, because everybody wants to control stuff in their life. Even 18-month-old babies like to demonstrate some control. So how do we teach people how to control, make good decisions, um, be planful in their actions um, is a really important part of building that resilience. And Sue, I was just, you, you said something that made me think of uh, a resource that I've uh, found recently, a, a website called uh, mindfulschools.org, which uh, focuses on mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. And uh, I found a video on that site called Just Breathe, and it's, it's you know, it's probably three minutes long, mm-hmm. and it focuses on children um, roughly 8, 9, 10, who talk about their experience of, of getting anxious and how they respond by by breathing and what that feels like what their brain feels like uh before they um uh, engage in that in that breathing exercise and what it feels like after it's it's really uh it's really very sweet it's uh uh, something that I've posted to a Facebook page that the Midcoast Resilience Project um, maintains and uh, gotten a lot of response uh, to that video. So, yeah. yeah, however we can teach those skills, it's just really important. And, and there are apps that people can download for free that um, are calming apps, actually. I was with a building principal in a fairly large school the other day, and he has a, he has three apps on his um cell phone that he uses throughout the day to recenter and get himself back on balance when rough things happen. <laughs> oh, technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh- 
You know, I wanted to get back to something else, Sue. Through the Maine Resilience Building Network, I became aware of the uh, the team at Waterville Senior High School, mm-hmm. Sherry Brown and her colleagues. And, you know, that's a school response that uh, I'm sure they've gotten support from the administration, but it was the teachers in the school who really said this is an issue we need to focus on. And at the um, Building Thriving Communities Conference uh, in November, this past November, um, I received a copy of their, their five-year summer. So when you know when when I'm talking to schools, uh, I'm saying you know your superintendent might change, your principal might change. There might be administrative decisions or policies that could change with a with a new administration. And so what what team of teachers might kind of take this on, and and how might you be able to further the work of uh, resilience building and knowledge about uh, children's uh, traumatic stress response? And um, I. I th- I think that's happening. I mean, I haven't seen the results yet. Perhaps you have, but um, I was really impressed with that team of teachers at Waterville Senior High School. Right, and they are now, like several other schools, um, really reaching down into the lower grades Uh and taking some leadership to um, participate in training and thinking about a continuum between pre-K to 12 of, you know, building resilience and being um, aware of what's going on in their in their kid population. What what are and they doing? Families. What is that program? Do we um, they call it their ACES team, but they've um, you know they they've engaged students. They actually have a student ACES team at Waterville High, um, and the kids actively talk about resilience and what they can be doing with their peers. They have if you walk in there, you'll see all kinds of posters and reminders about resilience. What is resilience, and that. There's always somebody that a child can turn to in that building to be supportive. Um, they've, they've, they've moved, for example, in order to engage families more um, in school activities. They, they have uh, parent-teacher nights in the communities where their students come from um, rather than at school because so many parents themselves didn't have a good experience in school, and they... We speak a different language in public education, and the, just walking in the door is challenging to them. So reaching out and being more in the community and talking about our shared um, caring and priority for, for your child, this is how their conversation goes. You know, you and I are partners. Um, we want your child to have the very best year possible, and we, we're going to work together to make sure that that happens. And then they talk about the strengths of the child and the concerns of the child and how are we going to communicate. So if, in fact, something unfortunate happens at home, um, a parent leaves or there's a fire or whatever it is, that the parent contacts the teacher, whether it's a text or an email or a phone call, and lets them know so that the next morning at school that teacher can be waiting outside for that child's bus and they bring them inside and they have a quiet moment in the classroom and they make a plan for the day so that that child knows that somebody's there for them if they start to get upset or, or afraid um, and how, that, how the day is going to go so that they feel safe. Because one of the things that we know through this work is that while all children want to be loved, it, they really need to be safe. And so many of their behaviors that, that they're doing um, often unintentionally uh, again, because of the brain development, so many of the behaviors that they're doing um, are 
are have proven successful for them, uh, at least in their mind, to be safe, to get out of a situation that feels uncomfortable to them. Um, so it's important for parents and teachers to understand that. I wanted to say um, I appreciate the reference to the high school. I got a call this morning before I left to get on the road to come here to WERU from um, Camden Hills Regional High School, and we'd been going around for some time about being able to offer uh, a viewing of the film and a discussion uh, for their staff. And so that's been set for April 13th. And, and um, to to the further point, um, April 25th, we've scheduled for a community viewing that would uh, invite people from the Camden-Rockport community. Uh, it's uh, 6 to 8 p.m. in the evening um, to, to, to view the film and, and to talk about it and also uh, hopefully provide support to some teacher activities that will come out of this staff viewing on Friday the 13th. I almost hate to say Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. but, but there it is. And um, just quickly, uh, tonight we'll be offering a viewing and discussion in Thomaston at Oceanside Middle School from 6 to 8. And that's a school where I'd done a staff training earlier and had a great discussion about what their current initiatives are. I think RSU 13 is a school district that's, a school district that's committed to social-emotional learning. They've, they've done a lot of, of great initiatives. And on April 10th, uh, we'll be offering a viewing and discussion of the film at Lincolnville Central School, also from 6 to 8. PM. We'll have that on the the website also, but is there a place people can go to check that out? Midcoast Resilience Project, if you use Facebook or my email address is simply resilience, R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-C-E, at B org, and people can connect with me directly. I'm hopeful that we can also let people know in the Down East area that the Cops Cook Community Learning Center has a copy of the Resilience film and uh, through a project called Project Tree, Transform- Transforming Rural Education is offering viewings and discussions of the film. And then also further down the coast, Healthy Lincoln County uh, has a copy of the film and is providing uh, community viewings and discussions of the film. So so if you want to see this film, if you want to get together with other folks, parents, professionals, and talk about it, um, hopefully you can find a place where you can uh, where that will fit. And, and Sue, uh, tell me uh, how people can get a hold of you as well. Again, we'll have all of this on the website. but mm-hmm. um, People are encouraged to go to our website, which is um, they can Google MRBN or enter Maine ACES, M-A-I-N-E, ACES. Um, and they'll find a lot of announcements of conferences and, and opportunities on that website, as well as resources, as well as other people who are connected to this work throughout the state of Maine. Um, we have more than 1,000 members of the Maine Resilience Building Network now. Wow. Um, and, That's great. you know, people are coming together. We gather together on a quarterly basis. It's, it's a little hard in Maine to get people from all over the place in one location. Um, so we're working on using distance, but been a little bit resistant to doing that because we like the relationship part of the, the gatherings. But um, there's also a, a whole lot of resources on there um, that people might find interesting depending upon their role in life and what they're currently thinking about. If people want to contact me, it's mainaces at gmail.com. 
Go ahead. Uh, just just one more thing. I'm I'm uh, sitting here with some papers in front of me. One of them is a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I think this might be important to stress uh, from their report. The type of stress that results uh, when a child experiences adverse childhood experiences may become toxic when there is strong, frequent, or prolonged activation of the body's stress response system. And then emphasis here, in the absence of a buffering protection of a supportive adult relationship, um, hopefully that comes from a parent. But the research shows that having a a significant relationship with a caring adult uh, can help to buffer the uh, effects of those uh, stressful environments. So teachers can do that, clergy can do that, uh, you know, a variety of different mentoring type positions. Uh, We're just really encouraging people to make an effort to connect with a child whom you know to be struggling. And the uh, benefit of that might be inestimable. Um, so we, we want to reach out. If we're like Miss Kendra and we're asking kids, are you okay? Do you need something? Can I help you? Um, it, can ma- it can cause a, a tremendous benefit. Right. So, I would echo that. I mean, yes. And, you know, I, I, we didn't get to talk about this in great detail, but when, on the way over here, we were talking about how when there is stress, the DNA can change. And and it can be generational. So it, these kinds of techniques that we're talking about can actually change that kind of uh, situation. Would you say that it can actually change the the historical? It it changes the way the DNA the DNA telomeres link, um, and that's called epigenetics. If anybody wants to read about that, EPI genetics, um, and it's really a fairly new form of science. 15 years old, hmm. but it really reinforces for us that our lived experience, so going back to a little bit where we started earlier in the program, those social determinants of health, you know, whether we grew up in a wartime or whether we grew up in the Depression or didn't have enough food, etc., does have an impact on how our DNA interfaces and can be seen later on in, in generations uh, forward from us, you know, two, three, four generations Wow! forward. Yeah, it's very powerful new science. Well, we are coming to the end. We could obviously going to have to have you both back again, and there's so much more to discuss. We will have a lot of those links um, on the website here at WERU. Dot org and you can well and all those links are possible uh, to get right now as well um, on the website. I want to say that our guests on Healthy Option today have been Sue Mackey Andrews, co-founder and co-facilitator of the Maine Resilience Building Network, and Patrick Walsh, the facilitator of the Midcoast Resilience Project. Thank you both for being here today and sharing such valuable insights and information with us. We're very grateful that you both are here in Maine doing this incredibly intense and important work. We have links, as I said, for the Midcoast Resilience Project and other resources when we post the show on the Public Affairs Affairs section of WERU.org. In the meantime, if you missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to WERU.org to find our recent programs on demand. Thanks, John, for your engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks all of you, our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. 
Hi, this is Amy Brown, host of Maine Currents, inviting you to join me at a new time, the first Thursday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. for independent local news, views, and culture here on your community radio station, WERU-FM. That's Maine Currents, moving to the first Thursday of every month, 10 to 11 a.m. And as always, you can reach us with story ideas and suggestions at news at weru.org. And join us the first Thursday of every month at 10 a.m. for Maine Currents. WERU Community Radio is looking towards the future, and we need you to add your voice to the voice of many voices by taking our listener survey. Our board of directors and staff have begun a strategic planning